Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Rachel Fulton Brown joins us again. She was on a couple of years ago, I think now, to discuss her book, Mary and the Art of Prayer. She is professor of history at University of Chicago. Uh, Her page at the Chicago website begins, Welcome, I am the professor your other professors warned you about. I love Christianity, America, and the Western tradition of theology, art, philosophy, music, letters, education. I find that an offensive description, but we're going to proceed anyway. Welcome, Professor Brown. <laughs> yeah, you're you're one of those professors. They no wait, I'm confused now. <laughs> okay, well, look, tell tell us, go to us. How strong would you? I mean, our our topic today is a little free ranging. We're not on a book. We're going to talk about medieval studies a bit. We're going to talk about higher education in America today. So, first question: How strong is, and maybe how explicit is? anti-Christianity on elite campuses today? I'd say it's strong, but it's not explicit. It's cloaked in a lot of other language. I mean, white supremacy constantly comes up, and I I do think that that is one of the cloaks for it. I, 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 my description of the Western tradition, we can definitely go down that rabbit hole about what the white part means. I think it's part of the British Empire. So whether that's Christianity, not really. sort of yes it it we can't talk about it because the labels are being used you know weaponized and it's obscuring there's a, it's like a big cloud of squid ink obscuring what people are actually fighting about i presume that that's deliberate because if we had the explicit uh anti-christianity that wouldn't play well overall with the american public is that is that True, you think? I I think probably not. Uh, Most people are Christian. (laughs) Um, And without Christianity, we have no moral basis for our society. So, you know, they have to cloak it in a variety of things. They also have to weaponize things that Christians actually do care about, like compassion and love of neighbor and nations and, and so forth. So, it, the the white the whiteness I I see now I've I've been studying this because I got in the midst of it so much um, several years ago um, and and thinking about it quite deeply and I think there there are various layers one is Christianity but two is a, a sort of the United States role in taking over from what had been the British Empire which has a you know is modernity and the West in some very interesting ways having to do with the domination of the seas and and so forth. I I see a few people that are able to explain all of this properly and think it out, but I think most of us are still kind of trapped in the trapped in the rhetorical. He said, she said, it's your side, it's my side. I mean, the whole sort of red blue thing 
one, most people don't even care about that anymore because we recognize the uniparty. But I think we don't mm. quite recognize yet the truly the deep structural things that are playing out around us. We're, we're like in a big explosion and we don't know where the explosions are coming from. It, it, do, you, do you see less vagueness with hostility to Western civilization? Well, Mark, I may need to take you in a place that you may or may not like to go. Can I go there? <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. Well, okay. We'll call it the Spice Wars, all right? And and this is, there's actually a post up on my blog right now where I, I try to make this a little less like mystical and, and clearer, um, my Spice Wars study guide. We need to go back to the 16th century and the origins of the British Empire and the origins of the British Empire as a maritime power uh, based on um, domination of certain trade routes and particularly the spice trade, right? Which in the 16th century is still, um, it's, it's still kind of in flux, right? The Spanish have some control of it. The Portuguese have some, the Dutch are starting to, to move in. It's, it's the commodities that are, well, I mean, spices are drugs basically. And so if you, if you think about this as a, as a drug trade, it, it gets closest to it. it but it, 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 it also has characteristics of this is where the money is created, right? There's usury and, um, you know, financial manipulation involved. The British, over the course of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, gradually gained control of this maritime trade, right? And the United States has its origins in a revolt against some of that financialization, right? The Tea Party stuff, right? The Boston Tea Party is is throwing one of the spice commodities into the, the river, showing, you know, we're not going to be dominated by the taxes over this. The spice now that we're dealing with is, is petroleum, um, and that has... Um, layers of sort of reality, both in the actual oil that we need to burn the fossil fuels, but also, and this is one of my friends who blogs as contemplations on the tree of woe, is just writing about this. He's got a substack talking about the way in which the financial system based on the pet, on the petrodollar that was established in the 1970s is in fact what we're fighting now. And that petrodollar depends on United States domination of the, the shipping, um, the financialization of our economy based on oil reserves kept in Saudi Arabia, right? They're not even ours, right? So if you're worrying about your inflation, you're worrying about the West, you're worrying about maritime, um, you know, the maritime trade and the war in the Ukraine, it's all part of the same long historical story. And the West is this maritime empire. I'm not sure about what I think about that anymore. Well, the, I mean, at Chicago, is is that is that core? Do do people speak of this as Western Civ? So as far as I know, we're we know we're only just now thanks to I started seeing this last summer because of what happened with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and I happened to be reading some about movies, and I was thinking about Dune, the book Frank Herbert's book Dune. And Dune, in Dune, Herbert is thinking about the spice and the control of the spice, and it's this desert planet and the ships that need to control the spice and so forth like that. And it all just came to me in a flash. Your, your meta thing that you wanted me to talk about is why study the Middle Ages? You need mm. to study the Middle Ages because you need to understand the importance of the Silk Road and, and, and the, the, the Silk Road that linked China with the rest of Eurasia, right? It was a land route, which because it was shut down after the 14th century by the Black Death and the Ming closure of China pushed the West, literally the West, the nations like Portugal and Spain and then, and then eventually England, West into the Atlantic, right? The West is that domination of 
the Atlantic trade, which then expands into the Pacific trade, which then becomes the spice trade. And it's, it's this balance between the Silk Road and the maritime empires that we are now feeling shift, right? And if you need a very long perspective on history to understand why all of these, these, um, it's like turning an ocean liner is a big deal, right? It takes a long time for them to turn around. That's what we're sort of feeling in world history right now. And Afghanistan was one clue. Ukraine is another. Look at the way in which the Chinese are building that Belt and, Ro Belt and Road Initiative. It's the Silk Road again, right? And, mm. and so the tension is between the world island, that big landmass, Eurasia, and the world ocean. And we in the United States, we're, we're basically a, a little bitty archipelago in relationship to that world island. Most of the world population lives on the world island, not where we are, right? So, you know, thinking about the West and thinking about what we mean, we are, I've also been thinking a lot about pirates and, and pirate imagery. Something of what we are, we need to understand our, our vexed relationship with that maritime empire that we are, but we are also victims of. Is this big picture being taught in in history departments? Um, well, by me now, yes. I mean, it's it's something that I've been developing over decades, right? When I teach in the history of European civilization, and I think it's because, I mean, the, okay. So if we pull this back into what's the problem in the history departments, the massive problems in history departments right now is that they are too modernist. Right. We've been having discussions about this in my own department, saying most of our if you, you can see this, if you just look at the, the list of faculty in the department, too much of the department is simply focused on the 18th and 19th, 20th centuries, maybe 20, you know, 21st, not even the 18th. Right. It's like all 19th, no. 20th, 21st century. It's all industrialization. It's capitalization. It's the big battles between communism and capitalism. Almost nobody practices taking this this long enough view to see the way in which we are witnessing the, the 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 structural transformation of systems that have been you know been developing over centuries and if you can't take that long view you can't see it so as a medievalist i've always been sitting on the outside of modernity which loves mocking the middle ages right a lot of what we think of as the middle ages is modernity's own fantasy dark, about the, itself the, the, the dark time yeah yeah right right it's like you need you, you the modernity needs the dark ages to create its own like light you know emphasis right. and christianity comes into that obviously because modernity is secularized and rational and enlightenment and therefore christianity has to be be demonized um but my modernist colleagues in you know my own field and my own conversations with them simply don't see this because they don't see the the relationship between the long story and wh where we are now. And so, yes, I'm teaching it. I've been teaching it. I I've only in the past year, year really understood this, this actual big system problem in the way that I just described it. But unless we're looking at the, the full scope of history, nobody's going to see it, right? They're just going to be caught perpetually in the, in the moment, in the binaries of the moment. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. 
Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You referred to a, a controversy in medieval studies that you got caught up in a few, I guess, four or five years ago. And some of our listeners may be familiar with that, but a lot of them may not be. Uh, what was that episode? What happened? Oh, it's like, this feels, talk about ancient history. This was five years ago or six years yeah. ago. Um, so I have a blog called Fencing Bear at Prayer, where I've been writing for over, I mean, like two, since 2008. So going on 14, 15 years now. And in 2015, I did a little one-off blog post called Three Cheers for White Men, in which I mentioned things that I think women in the West should be thankful for, um, that we consider rape a horrible crime and, and expect men to defend us, chivalry, right? That we see marriage as consensual and that women should have a say. So the, the marriage ceremony sacramentally includes the I do on both parts um, and women's right to vote. Um, which we would not have without the political system that gives us that vote. You know, men voted for it in the first place, and now women get to vote. And and those were my three cheers, which were which were to a, a large extent meant to show that women in the West need to recognize why we have the status that we do. The, the West is incredibly um, supportive of women and, and has been for for centuries. Well, this of course got me called all sorts of names from white supremacist and misogynist. <laughs> Um, and um, over the course of 2016, 2017, I, I started that year with these posts on chivalry, trying to explain why I had that long view of, of the West. Um, and then I started writing about Milo um, Yiannopoulos, who was doing his campus tour that year, saying, I see him defending many of the things that we do value in, in our Christian culture and our Western culture. And that got me called all sorts of other names. Um, I pushed back um, a bit in my blog once I've been called names online in various places for a good year. There's an article out in the Chronicle of High Education just just today, just as we're recording, um, that gives a, a, the short version of all of that and um, puts it in context of other kinds of debates that have been going on in medieval studies that have been sparked by a, a fairly shallow appreciation of our present culture, but also of, you know, where I would say where you know, medieval studies actually comes from. Rachel, you're being too nice. <laughs> uh, I'm nice. The, I, I'm the good witch. Come on. The, 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 <laughs> but there, there were, there was a, there was a little mini academic industry of, of painting medieval studies as white supremacy, uh, mm -hmm. almost by definition. And, not only that the, the, the curriculum was to what dead white male Eurocentric, but actually the current practice of the discipline was, was oriented toward white supremacy. And one could see this in the way, I remember reading some things that people said, in the way in which actual white supremacists or white nationalists were adopting medieval medieval imagery medieval clothing uh, medieval medieval tokens isn't that right well yes that's the way it was cast but of course i always thought that was that was um a misrepresentation of the field that i'd been in for decades i i right. so i'm talking about the silk road the very first class i ever designed 
um, as a graduate student when I was I was doing some some um, adjunct teaching, as it were, was a course on medieval travelers, which was meant to you know study the travel accounts from within you know the British Isles, right? Mr. Gerald of Wales going to Wales, pilgrimage to Rome, Santiago de Compostela, and then of course the famous 13th century great travel narratives of William of Rubric, Franciscan, and Marco Polo, whom I'm sure people have heard of, who, because of the Mongols, were able to travel across the whole of Eurasia. Um, and, you know, Marco Polo famously spent some years in China. And that I had always myself been very interested in the way in which, you know, the European part of Eurasia was in contact with imagining, talking about, longing for the East. Um, I had also done a course um, that I did back in 2007. I co-taught with a colleague in Japanese history. She's a modernist. I'm a medievalist. We did this Knights and Samurai comparison. I mean, look at, you look at Eurasia. England's on one end of the, 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 the landmass and Japan's on the other. And they're very interesting similarities between the way knights and chivalry and samurai and Bushido develop and are fantasized and storytelling. And and I was not alone in my own field in being interested in these sorts of transcontinental comparisons and and stories. So when this particular group that you know the Chronicle article this morning is is talking about came along and wanted to get certain attention on the internet, they made they made up stories about the degree to which we had or had not been actually paying attention to these sorts of processes. We had been all along. And and that was one of the things that really bothered me most about it. It was a misrepresentation of our field. It was a misrepresentation of the conversations that I and and my colleagues had been in for decades. Medieval medieval Europe, medieval European studies had always been fascinated by the degree to which Europe was was in contact with regions outside of Europe and def, the, the definition of Europe. Now there is another. There's a there's a 19th century opposite side of this in which Medieval studies also develops as a, a, an expression of 19th century European nationalism, which has certain features that, you know, the critics are not wrong about. I mean, there, there were ways in which, particularly the British, particularly in, you know, their efforts to, for example, establish themselves in India, created a, a kind, a certain kind of racism that it is, is, you know, we do need to understand that and pay attention to it. And the white supremacy stuff, insofar as it exists, is a is an artifact of that imperialism. But it it does it it it's sort of nonsensical on both sides. The white the whatever they are, white supremacist Nazi guys, the Charlottesville group. I mean, I Richard Spencer is a nitwit, and always has been. Um, about you know the degree to which there is such a thing as whiteness um, in in a, a collectivity, right? It's it's as much of a fiction as blackness in the the nineteenth century characterization, so as to set populations against each other and keep them weak. How did that controversy uh, pan out? I mean, I remember for a couple of years there a lot of talk about medieval studies and the problems of medieval studies, the whiteness of it, but you just don't hear very much about that beyond, maybe it's still active within medieval studies, but it's not a broad humanities discussion, is it? It just kind of petered out, didn't it? Well, that particular manifestation of it petered out, although there's been, the reason there's this Chronicle article up right now is because there's a revival of it. Um, A couple of the people who were 
most active in calling me names, co-wrote a book called The Bright Ages. And certain people within that discussion are now calling them white supremacist and racist. <laughs> so it, it, it's kind of folded in on itself. Um, you know, within medieval, you know, within academia more generally, of course, what happened is um, the, the, you know, the claim of white supremacy has been normalized to the point where we now all recognize that we must have diversity initiatives. Um, and, you know, I, I am, as you see, I take the long view on a lot of things, trying to look at this as saying, you know, this is a, this is a late effect of the imperialism and the cosmopolitanism of that empire. Um, which is is another form of, you know, sort of self collapse, right? The the Dutch found New Amsterdam, New York, where you are, right? This great cosmopolitan city, and it's it's famously diverse from the beginning. Um, the British Empire, you know, was proud of itself for spanning the globe and including all of these peoples. We're we're in the the problem of white supremacy and of, you know, the West and what it is. We're we're feeling the effects of the collapse of that empire. Hmm. You, you mentioned the, the normalization of, of white supremacy now. Uh, Mark Edmondson, who's a professor at, of English at University of Virginia, he wrote a piece a while back uh, talking about this new addition to his annual report, a new question. The faculty, just for, for people listening, each year faculty members have to make an annual report describing the courses they taught, the number of students that were in those courses, the committees they were on, and the research that they published during the year, and that goes into your salary recommendations by the, by the chair, there, Mark said there's also a new question, says, uh, what did you do this year to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, on, on our campus? Is that on uh, the Chicago report? No, now? we don't. We don't. We, d we did just establish a new department in the social sciences, um, and I'm I realize I'm not quite sure what the title of the, the, the formal title, it's diversity, indigeneity, and I, I, I blanked, I'm, I'm blanking on what the, the proper title is. Um, I have an answer to that. Indigeneity. It, okay. No, I, 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 no, I'm, I, I'm bungling <laughs> it. I, di I didn't expect to go here. Um, okay. That um, I have an answer to that. And I've had an answer ever since my own department back in 2017, 2018, <laughs> I've thanks to thanks to thanks to COVID years, I've lost all my chronology. Um, uh, before COVID, there was a um, statement that my department wrote that wanted to say, you know, basically we we support diversity, and there was some interest on campus of, of directed at me whether or not I would sign this statement, and I did sign it. I I we had a conversation about it in in the department, and I said, why aren't we talking about class? And they said, oh yes, I guess we have to put that in. Um, and I explained on my blog, there's a blog, a post on the blog called the niceness cosmopolitan creed. <laughs> I hope you see what I did there. Um, saying why, it sounds, why, it sounds like Maxwell smart in the old TV show. If only yeah, he had yeah, dedicated his energies to niceness. It's the niceness cosmopolitan evil. creed, which yes. is a, you know, a parody in effect of the Nicene cos Constantinopolitan creed. Of course, I'm going to sign a statement that says we should include everyone in the church. Right. <laughs> and that see that's why I say most of the time what we're doing we, you and I started in the conversations like would Christians compassion and neighborliness are Christian values we would not be having to write these diversity statements if we weren't actually also worrying about Pentecost 
and that, you know, all nations belong in the church, that we should speak in all languages, that we should, you know, include our neighbors and, and all peoples. It, it's, it's a curious sort of, well, of course we care about diversity. We're Christians, right? And that's, I think, the, the, the truly diabolical problem with the white supremacy and the anti-Christianness. It's trying to make a church of the world when we know as Christians that that is satanic. You know, one of the points <laughs> he that says, you implied, <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Uh, one, of the, one of the points you implied a minute ago uh, and, and that you did, I remember reading at the time, was that the people making a lot of these claims against medieval studies and whiteness and so on, they, they, they're, they're not as educated as they should be in the field. They, they haven't received a good a good graduate, undergraduate and graduate training. How would you compare your training in medieval studies when you were in graduate school and what students get today? That's a good question. Um, well, I mean, the, I, I can, if I, if I go back to my training in English, a lot of the requirements have disappeared. We, we had to do two reading, uh, two knowledges, reading knowledges of other languages. Now it's usually one. We had to do bibliography, and that, that's disappeared. We had to do a lot of philology. We had to do two courses in philolo English philology that required us to do things like phonetic transcriptions of Shakespeare. Th that, that has disappeared. The, the standards have gone down. I should say maybe the requirements have gone down. Do you see a parallel thing in medieval studies? Well, I mainly only know our, uh, my own department's requirements, and those have those are still what they were. I mean, we still have the language requirement, we still have the research requirement. Um, ours, it, you know, I have more quarrels with my department and the way in which we changed our BA requirements in terms of not not requiring a research paper anymore. Um, it's a bit I. The thing that I would say right now that distinguishes the training that I had as an undergraduate and a graduate in medieval studies and, and, and what I recognize as significant now is I had a whole year-long course as an undergraduate in natural philosophy and mathematics. Hmm. And I just this past spring was teaching a course on the quadrivium for my own undergraduates. And I realize the, the most important thing that we need to do in order to, as it were, save education, but we've got to re, you know, sort of recombine the the verbal and the math, right? And if if you say, you know, we've had this this long running nonsensical this division between the arts and the sciences. No, medieval education was the the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and dialectic, and the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And I realize now that the massive thing that we've lost is training in, um, well, poetry. <laughs> You're saying, why, 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 what, what happened in English? We lost, and this is my, my current like crusade and ambition and please buy our books, um, iambic pentameter, right? The reason that we don't know how to think anymore is we don't train in metered language. We don't train number and word together. We don't train our souls and our hearts and our bodies to make verse, right? And you, you're going to have to have me back on and have a complete conversation about that. And this was kind of an accident for me as an undergraduate because 
the Mellon Foundation had given money at Rice for some visiting scholars. And I had a whole year with um, Professor Roy Laird in natural philosophy and mathematics. And I think that's what kept me, my, it's my, it was my math training over the years that kept me balanced and sane, that I can do calculus, that I can do differential equations, that I can do vector calculus. And I think most, obviously most humanities scholars don't go that far in mathematics. We should. Uh, enrollments in, in English, the English major has tumbled. Uh, I, I just give you a quick statistic. In, in 1970, about one in 12 or 13 four-year degrees of any kind in this country were in English. English, English got about seven, eight percent of all the degrees. One, about one in 13. In 2019, it's now below one in 50. Uh, have have we seen the same tumble in history? You know. I I don't know. Um, again, I I'm 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 afraid I'm a little local in my knowledge on that. It get, we've been stable um, at Chicago at least in history. But my my sense though, I mean, obviously I, people are still doing you know fields that are not science fields, and I've just made my pitch for why we need mathematics. Um, I would include probably in the numbers of like who goes into all the studies programs, gender studies, race studies. You know, I mean, medieval studies, which we we actually have a major for that at at Chicago, but we don't have a department. You know, how many of the people that used to do English majors are now in the studies program? I I would be interested to compare that. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we've had the same modernization process happen that you described right. earlier. A heavy orientation toward twentieth century, not even nineteenth century, twentieth century and twenty first century in English. All right, la- last question. Rachel, you wrote a letter, an open letter to the president and provost of Chicago <laughs> about a year ago. What, what was that? What, what was that letter? What was Ditch that? the masks. Oh, my gosh. That was just in January. Um, so we've had some fairly, you know, ordinary COVID measures at the University of Chicago, including, you know, mandated vaccines and testing and masks and so forth. And um, that my my I've been writing to our new president. I've written a lot about on my blog, again, on my blog about masks and the spiritual effects that I think they're having, because my expertise is is you know, not epidemiology, but it is in trance induction and, um, you know, spiritual training and so forth. And I see the masks as a way of creating, I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a particular kind of socialization, tribalization I've done a lot of posts on that, how putting the mask on makes you, you know, sort of belonging, right? So I, I never believed that it had anything to do with disease transmission. It, 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 it doesn't. It has to do with training a, a group in compliance. Um, and again, you know, I can, I reckon, I study religious rituals, so I know the way this works. And I could see us doing that in our in our effects on, on campus. And so I wanted to talk to the president about that and the provost. Um, I also think that the vaccine mandates were coercive and and unethical, and I did apply for an exemption which was granted. But you know, the university did not make it clear that that was part of its its recognition of what what was going on with this. It's like, as you know, I should get be able to get a second opinion if I have a medical diagnosis. I should not be forced to take a treatment for something that I don't have. Um, and I should be able to refuse, you know, 
medication that is all of these things, right? The university has never had a discussion about this. I wrote that letter. I posted it on Twitter. Brownstone Institute picked it up and, and a lot of people noticed it. Um, we still haven't had that discussion on campus. The, uh, I'll, I'll tell everyone, the blog that you do is called Fencing Bear at Prayer. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Professor Brown, thank you for joining us. Oh, can I say a little bit about my poetry? Also look at dragoncommonroom.com. That's where we're working on the poetry. Dragoncommonroom.com. Very yes. good. Yes. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 Three three two two nine three zero. 232